The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Prospect Barbacast, the only prospect podcast in the world that puts the four love in 40 glove. I'm Jake Mintz and I am joined by two prospect experts, Jordan Schusterman and Mike Farron. Gentlemen, a pleasure and a privilege. Why are you dressed like Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back? It's always good to start a podcast by remarking on how someone else is dressed. Jordan, how you doing? I appreciate it because I was about to ask the same thing. I know we tweet clips out sometimes so you can see what Jake is wearing, but uh, this is one of the more ridiculous outfits that that uh, that my dear friend Jacob has brought to the party here. And it's just special for you, Mike. I know we were together in Nashville last week, but it seems like Jake really wanted to make an impression and make sure you remember you know, what he's all about. Yeah, no, this is the Jake that I'm much more comfortable with than the semi-professional one that we dealt with in person. I can be, you know, get you a a podcast host who can do both. On today's episode (laughs) of Prospect Barbacast, during which I will be, I am wearing maybe the thickest coat I have ever owned and purple tinted sunglasses. We're going to talk about an ACL gone kablooey, Ronnie Mauricio, hyped prospect in the Mets organization, his leg. Uh, Gave out on him during winter ball in the Dominican. We'll chat about that. We're going to talk about the prospects going the other way in the San Diego Padres, Juan Soto, New York Yankees blockbuster deal and how the Yankees pitching development apparatus allows a move like that to happen. We'll also talk about the resulting fallout, the roster spot jamboree and the 2023 Tulsa Trillers before we say goodbye with some Otani contract chatter. But let's begin in Santo Domingo, where I can't believe it. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, Jake, uh, one of the the downsides of the winter ball season is injuries that impact the following season. This is just part of it. You know, there are a lot of players, especially those uh, who are, you know, Dominican or Venezuelan who want to play ball in their native country in front of their friends and family and for teams that they grew up rooting for as kids and grew up seeing and playing. And winter ball is, a, is an awesome opportunity. It's a, it's a part of baseball that we like to promote all the time and talk about. And particularly over the last few years, we've seen a lot of top prospects competing in winter ball and teams, major league organizations being a lot more willing to let players go down there and play. And we can talk about why, you know, they've been more open to that, but 
ultimately sometimes, you know, you get bad luck like this. And Ronnie Mauricio, who we did see make his major league debut earlier this season with the Mets, uh, does sound like he reportedly tore his ACL. Total non-contact, just basically was at first base. If you've seen the clip, seemed like he was taking a lead or about to go towards second and then just kind of gave out um, pretty standard. It looked, it looked terrible at the time. It wasn't really gruesome, but it was just like, yep, that's that's what an ACL tear kind of looks like. And uh, Mike, I mean, we can get into kind of Ronnie Mauricio's interesting trajectory, but the timing, obviously, for a prospect yeah. who's looking to establish himself this year is very unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's better than having it happen, I guess, at the end of spring training and costing him the season. And that you know, it, if you look at six to eight months coming back, there's a chance that he would play this year. But this is a really difficult one to swallow. You know, the Mets appear like they're going to go young at third base and Ronnie Mauricio, Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos, um, you know, are all relatively young players. I think uh, Mauricio is the only one that still technically has prospect status. I also feel like he has the highest ceiling of that group. I mean, he'd been a shortstop throughout. He's one of those guys that just, I, like I was looking forward to at some point us having the, who would you rather have Ronnie Mauricio or, or uh, Luciano with the Giants? Because I think they're pretty similar players. Um, and I think there's there's a real chance that Ronnie Mauricio would have been their opening day third baseman and played the bulk of the time there. So this is really difficult just because you're losing this this incredible talent. And from the, the Mets standpoint, I mean, it has reduced their options at third base. Now they're fortunate that they have a couple of other young players. And, you know, Brett Beatty was a first-round draft pick. And Vientos has put up some pretty big minor league power numbers. But I think Mauricio was the guy who really felt like he was had a chance to take a big step forward and losing him and you know, losing his potential, at least for a chunk of this year, is tough. Now, the good news is that guys come back from ACL injuries all the time. The question is going to be, you know, how quickly he's able to get back and get confidence in that knee. We saw that with Ronald Acuna Jr. But two years ago where he, he never really felt like he had confidence in that knee, even though he played through it in 22. And then, you know, obviously in 23, it was the laser show. So I think it's also relevant within the context of the Mets plan for 2024, mm-hmm. which we have heard so much of they're not pushing all the chips in, right? They are taking a longer-term view and that 2025 is the year they expect to be a serious contender. And the strategy, the, the idea behind that is like they need to figure out which of the young players are legitimate pieces on the next great Mets team because you cannot, as we learned, build the boat out of old wood. You cannot only have 37-year-old free agents at all the positions. And so having good, young, controllable talent is vital to building a sustainable contender. And now it's just one fewer piece that the Mets are going to find out the truth about. You know, we just did our breakdown uh, of the Mets roster on Tuesday on on our radio show on Power Alley and MLB Network Radio. And and one of the things we were talking about was, you know, they're still in a pretty good position in terms of the talent that they have. You know, Francisco Alvarez looks like he might be a legit guy. Like, a, I mean, he's got a chance to be a first division catcher. They have plus players in center field and at shortstop and I think at first base too with Alonzo. Um, and, you know, with Senga in the rotation, he's a pretty good building block too. It, it's 
it's that next tier of player that they fall off pretty quickly. I think that because Jeff McNeil is a high contact hitter, that that probably impacts his stat line year to year. You know, he's not going to be a guy that walks a ton. And so the on-base percentage is going to be driven by what he does on balls in play. And I think the feeling was with Mauricio, you had a guy that had some, you know, right-handed pop, some potential there to be able to, you know, probably start the season at the bottom of the lineup. But create some depth. Now, that's not to say that Brett Beatty can't do that. I mean, Beatty, you know, again, not not technically a prospect, but certainly a young player, you know, he gives them a little bit better platoon advantage as a left-handed hitter. And if there are some adjustments he can make to clean up some of the holes that he had, you know, there is real power potential there. And he's improved defensively, but he's just not quite as complete all-rounder, doesn't have a chance to be quite as complete an all-round player as Mauricio. Let's chat. Jordan, do you have anything else on Mauricio? specifically because I want to I want to talk about the winter ball side of this too yeah yeah and I I was going to bring that up particularly in Mauricio's context you know this is the third straight winter that he has you know gone down and played for Lise and last winter was part of uh, a a real positive step in his development because he was the MVP of the league which is especially rare Uh, you know you talk about winter ball and there's a very volatile talent pool, but it is a much older league. So at the very least, you are facing a lot of very experienced players. You might not be facing, you know, the level of pitching, of course, that you would necessarily want to say, this is him proving himself, proving his hit tool, proving these things. But he dominated as one of the youngest players in the league last year, goes back down because he obviously cares about and wants to keep playing for say. But I'm just fascinated by him because, again, the kind of, as you mentioned, that comp with Luciano, um, you know, also last year he played with Ellie De La Cruz. Now it's not on that mm-hmm. level of explosive, you know, speed power combination, but he came up and a couple of the first balls he's hitting in the big leagues this year with the Mets, even in a small sample size are some of the hardest hit balls they have all season. Right. Right. And when you could think about that as an infielder, maybe not a shortstop, but as an infielder is a very, very special possibility. Of course, the issue with him, he just hasn't taken walks. That's really been the basic thing. It's a very aggressive approach that that has been ex- exploited at times at higher levels, but the tools still there are, are really special. But I agree, like the winter ball thing, you don't want this to scare people. I mean, as we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, like Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to play tonight for Estrellas. <laughs> like these guys want to play and there's risk involved with all of them and all these different contexts and reasons guys goes down, but it is- um, Acuna's you know, have- playing the full season. In yeah, he got hit by a pitch on the hand already yeah, in that, like, which freaked people out, you know. But I asked, I'm glad guys are playing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I asked Brian Snicker at the winter meetings. I was like, "Hey, dude, uh, the your best player, who's like one of the best three players in the world, is playing a full season of baseball in Venezuela during the off season, like no rest." I'm curious what went into the strategy behind that, right? And Snit's response was basically like. Ronald wanted to play and like that, that was it, right? Ronald wanted to play. And for some teams, that is the calculus. If a guy has enough juice and enough sway within an organization, like Tatis is an example, right? Tatis wants to play. Tatis is going to play, right? Right. The team cannot restrict a player from playing. They can heavily kind of disincentivize them. It's similar to the world baseball classic in that regard. They can put the writing on the wall and a player can read between the lines. But Another reason that a team would send a guy, they're two different, right? That's the difference. Sending a guy to play winter ball and allowing a guy to play winter ball. Sending a guy to play winter ball, the thought process there is playing in a highly competitive, highly pressurized environment that you cannot create in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. Winning and losing games does not matter 
in the minor leagues. Some teams try and create more of an environment around certain teams where winning championship matters. It does not compare in the slightest to what goes on in winter ball. And so seeing how certain players fare in that type of environment is really useful. And then the other reasons are just injury, right? If a guy missed a lot of time, didn't throw enough innings, didn't see enough pitching, didn't get enough at-bats, they're trying out a new position, maybe in the field, sending them down a winter ball to get those reps is really helpful. And so there are there, there are various approaches. Certain teams, if you look at the numbers, right, there are certain teams who send a ton of guys down there and certain teams that never send guys down there. And that ideology kind of varies from club to club. Um, so I just, all of this context I'm sharing with you folks is just so you can understand like the environment in which Ronnie Mauricio's leg went kablooey. Yeah. And, yeah. Mike, I just want to, I want to kick it to you here because I'm curious. This is where we're going to take advantage of the fact that you've done this a lot longer than us. I'm curious if you sense that like, is this, have you sensed this shift in, in the mm-hmm. time that you've covered the league in the way that winter ball is treated in the stories that you've heard in, in a positive sense from a developmental side, are we making too much of it feeling more popular or more common for teams to be willing to let guys go because and, and to or, be clear, send guys over, a, you know, a rod played in years ago, a rod yeah. played in winter ball. So it's like, we have seen this over time. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of back on the uptick is at least my feel on it. And, you know, to your point, I mean, it's not just Mauricio is playing, but like, you know, like, first of all, the, the winter leagues are all very different, right? So, like, the Dominican is the highest level of talent. Like, if you had a hitter and you wanted to teach them how to hit off-speed and breaking balls, you send them to Mexico to go play, right? Because those are all guys that have been playing since they were, like, 14 years old and they can trick them um, with the best of them, right? Venezuela tends to be a little older league. Puerto Rico is a good spot for development, like like we're seeing with the Braves and Vaughn Grissom is going to go there to, to play the outfield some. So... I think there is that feeling, you know, it's not quite the same as, you know, where it was 20 years ago, even, and certainly 40 years ago, where you had pitchers basically pitching through the entire winter and then coming to spring training and starting up again. You don't see that very often. You may see some guys fighting for jobs, um, we're to get back into affiliated ball that are pitching down there. Um, you'll see a lot of older players that are kind of past the the um, you know their major league careers that are that are key contributors down there. I mean that's why you see guys like Fernando Rodney and Jumbo Diaz still show up and pitch and uh, you know are effective in that league. Um, but I think that there is I think there is at least and I haven't talked to anybody in development about it. I think it's a good question and something we should probably start asking about is that value of facing more advanced competition in a higher stress environment. You know, we talked a lot about the fall league a couple of weeks ago and the fall league is definitely not a high stress environment. You know, you have like 700 people in the stands of a spring training game. If you go to, as I know you guys know, well, you go to a game in Lidome and like, it's, like every game is do or die. Like you, like managers get fired two weeks into the season. It's almost like dealing with the NHL. Like it's ridiculous, but the winning matters. And if you don't perform, you go home. Like that's it. Like there's Wait. no other option for you. If you start six for forty four, even if they want to get you some at bats, you're probably you not any more at bats. Yeah, right. right. We're not going like, to get you to Christmas. Vinny Pasquantino was on the show last week. We talked about this. He got sent home after three weeks. He was he was horrible. And yeah. he was like getting death threats from people on the stands, you know, like that's the environment. And just because you fail or succeed in that space doesn't mean you're going to fail and succeed in the big leagues. But it is a developmental tool, I think. Yeah. And allows players from these countries to 
play in what is often a more comfortable environment for them, right? Yeah. Now, if you're sending Vinny yeah. Pasquantino down there, that's fish out of water. But if you're sending like Julio Rodriguez and letting him play for Escojito, I know he's from Santiago up north, but it's like that's in some ways more appealing than playing in Arkansas. Right. Right. And I think, too, I mean, like even for Vinny, like there's a lot to be said for going to a different culture and learning, uh, you know, about that. It makes you it makes you understand your teammates and have a better better connection with your teammates, especially when, you know, a third of the league is from Latin America. So I think there's huge benefits to it. And I think, you know, in those instances, even if you let's say you're a Dominican born player that's playing in Lidome or a Venezuelan born player that's playing in the Venezuelan Winter League, like facing that level of competition in that kind of environment and facing what's relatively high level pitching, I mean, usually double or triple A kind of equivalency is really valuable for helping to build that internal Rolodex for hitters. You know, that's one of the the best descriptions I've had. I think Steve Goldman gave that years ago about like, you're constantly trying to see the more pitches you see, the more times you see it, the more you're able to start remembering sequences and ideas and how to pick up spin. And, you know, especially it's, and again, I hate to stereotype on it, but a number of those winter leagues, you're not necessarily going to be facing guys that are throwing a hundred miles an hour. You might be facing guys that get after it by spinning it. And they're going to throw you like 70 straight sliders in a row. And so it's a really good way to learn. I think it's an incredibly beneficial uh, development tool. And I think it can be for pitchers too, if they're trying to build innings back is that teams are so protective of pitching anymore that that's why you don't see it happen. And probably, like, there are probably some cases where they need to take the kid gloves off just a little bit. So I just want to say, starting pitching in the Dominican, it's a lot more soft tossing. Mm -hmm. You will get gas with no GPS coming out of the bullpen, which is its own tricky little thing. It's Dangerous. good to learn because you're going to see that a lot at the big league level. Too. Exactly. It's yeah. it's a whole dose of Hennessy's Cabrera's. But but I got to say, <laughs> like, it is wild to go back and look at some of the winter ball numbers in like the 90s. Jose Lima <laughs> pitched 80 innings in Lee Dome and then 240 in the big leagues the next year. Like he basically just didn't stop. Mm-hmm. He was making like... 15, 16, 17 starts in winters, which is just completely unheard of for anyone who's like currently still trying to be a major league pitcher. Well, um, but yeah, there's and probably the other more, thing is, we could, maybe it would be better for, for some guys. And you know, for, for some guys too, it's like the money's pretty good. Like oh, yeah. for, for guys who aren't making a whole lot in the minor leagues, like totally. I have friends that have pitched there and, and, you know, all of a sudden ended up getting spring training a little bit late because they were getting enough in Mexico for each start that they were like, well, I'm going to take this all the way through. Like it, it's, you know, not everybody is making Shohei Otani money. Like there are guys that are, that are kind of jobbers in a lot of respect. And that, and that winter ball paycheck is really important to them. I would, <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm nuts. Unless I got a guy who got hurt, I would not send uh, many pitchers starters. I would not like, I, I think that the, developmental gains you can make in the weight room, in a pitching lab, in a shed somewhere in America are more beneficial in the long term 
than going down and trying to get outs. Yes and no. I, I mean, it's you'd know better than I would because you competed at a high level, but there's something to be said for being in the comp in the no, of competition course. too. Of course. And I think that that's really important. And I think, you know, we, we're seeing more and more that you can do that with hitters too, right? That you can work on biomechanical movements and all of that in a yeah, lab. But, but you've got to see how it, it works when you're competing when you can't check the Rapsodo every pitch, right? Like you have to know how your stuff's playing and whether or not your shit's good enough. And like that, yeah. you can really only do unless if you're in competition. Let me walk that back. I, I don't want to be so um, like total in what I was saying. Like I would just skew away from it. I think, yeah, we have to take the kid gloves off in some ways. I understand that. But for me, it's I would find for a lot of young pitchers that there's more value on the other side of things. On the hitting side, you have to be reactive. That, to me, is the biggest difference. I don't think you can replicate the game environment mm-hmm. as much for a hitter in a gym. Whereas for a pitcher, I think you can pretty closely do it. Obviously, the heartbeat, the the palms are sweaty, the knees weak, the arms are ready. I would, I, I get it, right? I just think that like, if you have a good pitching coach and good pitching development setup, you can make some crazy strides inside. Yeah, which is a good transition to our next topic, which hmm. is how the Yankees have. How about that uh, segue, gentlemen? Um, Let's talk Gee, it would have been uh, great if you hadn't stopped to pat yourself on the back in the middle. No, no, you got to. When you, <laughs> come on, come on, Mike. That's key to the podcast. You got to acknowledge That's a bad you're flip. doing good podcasting, okay? We got to take a moment here, okay? <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about uh, all the Yankees have been making a bunch of trades. And obviously the Juan Soto one is the one we're going to start with because they did trade four pitchers plus uh, their pitcher's friends, Kyle Higashioka. Uh, for Juan Soto in one deal, and then they made another deal in you know to help the Dodgers clear some space with with Los Angeles, where they traded one of their recent first round picks, Trey Sweeney, who's not a pitcher, but I definitely want to hit on that trade too. Um, we can kind of compare. Interesting to see two teams in the Dodgers and Yankees who have succeeded so much in player development in similar but also different ways. But let's stick on the Yankees here and let's talk about this Juan Soto trade return and and kind of what it teaches us about like sure you know when they when you first look at this transaction you say oh of course Juan Soto ended up on the Yankees they they can easily pay him and they can all these things and he's a great fit but ultimately there were plenty of teams that were interested in trading for Juan Soto mm-hmm. and the Yankees were as much as a lot of people don't want to admit it in an excellent position to make a deal like this as they have been in excellent position to make many trades in recent seasons because they have been extremely efficient and successful at developing pitching at all levels from from whether it is the top of the draft, the middle of the draft, internationally. And that is how you are able to put together a package when you have a team as desperate for pitching the way the Padres were. That is why they always made a lot of sense. Well, and think about it too. They did that 24 hours after they made a trade where they sent three pitchers to Boston for mm-hmm. for Alex Verdugo. And, I, and that, that happened right after we recorded last week. And like Richard Fitz is not nothing. Like he's, uh, he was Eastern League Pitcher of the Year. Like he's got a chance to be a big leaguer and, you know, maybe at the back end of a rotation or maybe as a swingman. So we were talking about fall Americans last week. I think you said that he's the ultimate fall American. He right? is, but it was also, not only was it after a trade with Boston where they traded their pitchers, it was also after they lost three pitchers in the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, yeah. And so I, what we've seen is just the Yankees, while, you know, their prospect lists 
I think especially with pitching and especially when you're not necessarily having pitchers that are coming from first round pedigree or coming from high, like they can sneak up on you a lot faster, especially when there's so many of them in the minor leagues. And we're going to talk about this with the Dodgers too, because they've amassed so many that so many of them kind of slipped through the cracks until they're close to the big leagues. And there are a couple of examples like that. I think Johnny Brito and Randy Vasquez are both great examples of that for the Yankees where suddenly they were in the big leagues and you're like, how do we, how do we miss this guy? Like they kind of just slowly moved their way up and eventually the numbers were too good to ignore. And then suddenly they were viable major league pitchers. And that's just a really valuable thing. And so what is, uh, I, I'll kick it to you, Jay, cause I know you've certainly learned, been closer to the Yankees talking to some of the Yankees, of course, Matt Blake, but even some of the ones below that the Yankees have taken a lot of flack recently for better or for worse about some elements of their player development thing and too, too much reliance on analytics and X, Y, Z. But what is indisputable is how much success they've had on the pitching side. That's an important split. I think the way the Yankees do pitching and hitting is very different. I do think that they have some good spots on the hitting development side. I'm not going to go into that, but I've always, I think the Yankees critique is more about how that information is like on the hitting side has been presented to the big league hitters and less about the development side, but let me just focus on the pitching stuff. Um, the, I think Eric Long and Hagen might have written it this way, but it really hit me well, which was the Yankees do a really good job of developing pitchers that other teams want. Mm-hmm. That's the key. They have not developed too many pitchers that have had lasting successful impacts in the big leagues, right? I mean, I would say King is that. I would say Clark Schmidt is that. And then I would say, sorry, on the relief side, they have actually certainly done that. Like Marinaccio is a, is a win. That's a huge win, right? They turned Wandy Peralta into something. That's a win. I think that they deserve the credit there. But they have found a way to get the most out of guys in the minors and matriculate them up towards the big leagues and make those players like enviable from other teams' perspectives. Michael, kick it to you. I think I think you know like and Luis Severino is another one that I would put in that mix of of you know Yankees that came through the organization. I mean King was acquired in a trade. I you know but they they really they got more out of his fastball. Yeah. They got more out of him as a starter. I think most have felt like when he was coming out of Boston College the, the bullpen was going to be um his ultimate role. He's been very good as a reliever and as a starter in the big league. So I mean the, the, and he was kind of the headliner in the Soto deal. But I I think what they have done is that they have identified ways to build better velocity, more consistent velocity, see guys improve. And so it's nothing to see the, like, let's use Drew Thorpe as an example, right? Who was part of that trade? Drew Thorpe, a big West pitcher, um, you know, out, out of Southern California. He was a guy who had very good, um, you know, at, at, at Cal Poly. He, I guess it's not really technically Southern California, but at Cal, Cal Poly, he was a guy that was viewed as a, a good command control guy and an extreme strike thrower. And he's seen a little boost in his velocity. And that's something the Yankees have done a very good yeah. job of. And I think that's part of what people are identifying with them is that they have taken guys who have a feel for how to pitch and found ways to make them better in the same way that Cleveland did with a number of pitchers. I mean, Cleveland's excellent with that. And so they are at the forefront, at least in terms of of how biomechanically they're helping pitchers get better, and that's making them more attractive to other teams. Now, the, the problem is I wouldn't say that these pitchers are unattractive to the Yankees. I think it's difficult 
to use many of these pitchers over the course of um, a season when you're expected to compete and win, right? You never like you never get the benefit as a Yankee player or very rarely do, of learning at the big league level right. and failing, right? Anthony Volpe is kind of the exception that proves the rule in this. But these names that you've mentioned in, you know, Randy Vasquez and and in, in Johnny Brito, who, you know, who went back to San Diego in the trade, they got tastes of the big leagues, but they didn't get a chance to really establish themselves. And that's because there's there is one goal in Yankeedom. They are they are <laughs> they are bound by their history to Say we, you know, they are Ricky Bobby, right? Like they, if you ain't first, you're last. Like there is no other option for the Yankees, and so you don't get that luxury of being able to break guys in. And very rarely do you even see a case like Luis Severino, who gets a couple of opportunities and is developed within the organization and makes as many starts for them as possible as he did. Like it doesn't the Andy Pettits of the world. You know, Pettit came up. You know, this is going back 30 years now at a time when the Yankees weren't very good. And that's not something that we've seen really since he was a prospect. And I think it's a little easier to, to you know, if you have a strong lineup, work in a position player like a Glaber Torres or like Volpe um, or like Aaron Judge to be able to have an impact on the team than it is when there's this constant need for pitching. And quite frankly, they're playing in the toughest division in the league, too, in the American League East. So, you know, I, I don't think that these players would be unattractive to the Yankees in other situations. I think it's just a, a nature of where they are constantly in the competitive cycle. And for a team like San Diego that needed pitching depth, I mean, listen, they, they're going to get a pretty good starter in King who has some health issues. And then beyond it, you know, Thorpe's going to go with their guys at double A that are intriguing. You know, Robbie Snelling, who was a high pick two years ago, already finished last year as a teenager at double A, really intriguing guy. Like they've got a good group there. And then you're going to be able to get some big league innings, either a starter or reliever or both out of Vasquez and Brito. And that helps to like it was almost a need-based deal for San Diego in the sense that they had to replace something close to 700 innings that they lost in free agency. And because those guys have been at the higher levels and have touched the big leagues, they are better prepared to be able to do that. And I think it's a little easier environment, even if the Padres are competing to do it there, than it is with the constant expectation of, of every game is the Super Bowl for the Yankees. In Yankee world, uh, onboarding someone is throwing them in the deep end with no life left. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They don't get the opportunity to figure it out, which makes Matt Blake's job as a pitching coach even harder. He's he doesn't have the leash to help a guy figure it out over time. Right. right. It is more of a revolving door because of the pressure to win. And I think that makes some of the successes that they've had on the pitching side even more impressive. And one more thing, just to give the Yankees a little more credit and then we're going to take a break. I mean, they've been drafting at the back half of the first round. Yeah. Forever. You know, that means less bonus pool money. That means less bonus pool money on the international side. That means you're getting worse clay to mold, theoretically. And but yet, they have done well, that's what I'm saying. And yet they have done a phenomenal job at molding the clay that they get and identifying what type of clay they can mold. Drew Thorpe real- is a prime example of this. Yeah, I but I think there's another part of this. And, you know, and I think Chase Hampton, who's a really good prospect from them too, is another one, right? But like the, they don't get enough credit for the job that they've done internationally too. I mean, I think when when you look at the number of arms that they're able to get 
you know, international signing, the international free agency for amateurs is a far more complicated process even than trying to figure out uh, deferrals on major league contracts. But a lot of times what you'll see is guys with that kind of fall below the bonus pool standards where they're getting five-figure deals because they might have arm strength or they might be a good athlete. And what the Yankees have been really good at is helping those guys develop into players that can help them where they're not necessarily major bonus babies, but they're guys that they can see enough improvement and then they're attractive in trade. And the Yankees, to their credit, have never been afraid to trade prospects. They always seem to they Andy Martino said this just the other day from SNY. The Yankees are one of the better organizations at sending their top scouts out to identify their play to look at their own organization. They do a great job of that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see them trade a number of guys where they don't necessarily miss them. Even if they turn into to helpful players or useful players other places it's because they they do not trade the guys that they actually feel like are going to impact their major league roster. Yeah, and Eli Fishman, uh, who covers us in the you know media relations with the uh, Somerset Patriots, you know, Double A Yankees mm-hmm. affiliate has covered the Yankees very well since he was literally like ten. So shouts out to Eli. Um, but he tweeted out a good list of which is basically the Yankees have traded twenty nine of MLB Pipeline's top thirty prospects at times over the last three seasons. And he tweeted out the list. I'm not going to give every name here, but you look at it and you realize how many either then they've been willing, and this is a transition to you know trade we're going to talk about after the break here that they just made with the Dodgers, whether it's first rounders, whether it's guys they gave three or four million dollars out of the DR, whether it's guys they gave ten thousand dollars that they developed into good prospects. It's a huge variety of kinds of players that they've decided, okay, this is the time to move them. They have good value here. They can help our major league team. And while there are some good players here that I still feel good about, when you trade that many and you look at it and there aren't that many where you're like, man, like that one really hurts. Like that's impressive. And and self-scouting is often as important, you know, as scouting uh, outside organizations. That is definitely an underrated element of what makes good organizations Great. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, uh, we're going to stick on the Yankees a little bit, but also pivot towards the Los Angeles Dodgers with the trade they just made to clear some space for Joe Kelly. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Prospect Barbacast. I'm Jordan Schusterman, here with Jake Mintz, who has taken his coat off. He's sweating too much. This podcast is getting too hot. Put me in the game. Put me in the game. I'm warm. (laughs) He's warm. Uh, Mike Farron is still here. Hello, Mike Farron. It's good. It's I'm glad I'm glad you haven't left us during the break. Uh, No, I thought about it, but I really wanted to see Jake run the bases with his jacket on. That's (laughs) all right. Well, one of the things that the DH has stolen from us. Lens. Oh, dude. Every time I see a clip of a pitcher running in a jacket, I'm like, this was all a mistake. We need to I think I think catchers should get to do it too. Mm. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, bring the jackets back. It doesn't have to be pitchers yeah. running. Why you know what I miss about catchers is wearing the shin guards in the on deck circle. That's so, what I miss about that? catchers. No, we still have that. So no. Mike, back quick story time. So growing up, I went to a place called Home Run Baseball Camp in Washington, DC. Shouts out. And we the camp was like you show up at 9 a.m. and you play till three. Like you just play baseball till three. And when we would play games, I would catch a lot and I would just take at bats in the legs. <laughs> like in the legs, like it fully in the legs. And then it's easier. Be- it's easier. And the as someone who now coaches baseball, Little League Baseball, 
there is nothing worse than kids taking forever to put catcher's gear on. Mm, and so I so understand true. why someone mandated that for me. It's like, this is a schlep to get on and off. Just keep it on. You're you're not that fast anyway. It doesn't really impact the way you're swinging. Keep the legs on. And I think I might, in a game, in a real game, not so. But I think more teams should think about that. I think it's a great great idea. It's uh, we need speed up rules, right? If we're not going to have the courtesy running yeah. for catchers, then we need to be able to yeah, get this going. Let them hit with equipment. I think courtesy running for catchers is is a great idea for the big leagues. I do, support do, it. Like if you if we can limit the pitcher roster size, then we could just literally carry a courtesy runner for catchers. Yeah. What happens if you have a catcher that's at, like do you real like you want to run for JT Real Muto or no? Like, it depends on your roster. I mean, this is great news for Chandler Simpson if this goes through. <laughs> hey, hey, have some faith. Chandler Simpson's going to earn his way on, not Victor's, as some sort of catcher courtesy runner. Okay? Victor Scott II would have yeah, an, added, an added element of uh, to his game with the Cardinals if we could do that. The we ultimate disrespect to these guys' hit tools. All right, guys, let's talk about uh, this other trade that the Yankees just made. Trey Sweeney, who they just took in the first round recently, a shortstop out of Eastern Illinois. Not exactly a, a prospect hotbed, although as an Illinois uh, native, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Mike. I mean, am I being disrespectful? Uh, no, although they've had a couple of relatively high picks over the last several years. Western Illinois, probably the more famous directional school <laughs> Than Eastern, oh, actually, Southern is probably the most famous. That's where Derek Shelton went. Southern used to go to Omaha pretty regularly in the old. Do you have Northern Illinois? Format. Is that one? There too? is Northern yeah. Illinois in DeKalb. Yeah, not a great baseball program there. Is Good there football, Central though. Central Illinois? Uh, that is a community college. Yeah, I was so say. Do, are you the only state that has four that has? Four? I think I've D1 looked this up before. All four? No, I don't think so. I think Louisiana does right, or they have. Super There's no Western, Louis, but they have Southeastern Louisiana. <laughs> right. It's like very specific. And North Northwest Louisiana. State. Yeah, Northwestern State. And they state. have Northwestern State. This is this is good research we will do later. Missouri used to it. have that, by the way. They used to have like like Southeast became, I think, Truman State. and then Oh, was, yes. Uh, Missouri State used to be Southwest Missouri State, I think. So there were directionals there. Truman State's where my, my, uh, my mother-in-law went. How about that? Oh. Uh, Mike Farron. Trey Sweeney, this gentleman, we just talked about how the Yankees, you know, self-scouting here. And I know that as we just talked about, they are willing to move prospects to help their major league team. When you trade the guy you took 20th overall, you know, two and a half years ago, that, that says something, right? Doesn't mean Trey Sweeney sucks, but it does mean that they don't feel that they feel like they can kind of move on from him and they don't see him necessarily meaning, you know, meeting the expectations that surely they had when they took him a couple of years ago. He's coming off a season where he was very average at best uh, in double A as a 23-year-old. Hasn't necessarily shown maybe the kind of star offensive upside that some hoped he might deliver. So let's start with him, and then we're going to flip it to the Dodgers because I think they their acquisition of Sweeney and one of the players they sent back in New York's direction Will lead us in sort of that direction. Yeah, I, I don't know. We that, have to hit on I, Sweeney first. Yeah, I don't know that I can I can separate it without talking about the trade as a whole personally because I think Sweeney is still a pretty good prospect. I know there's questions about how much power he's going to develop. There's questions about uh, whether or not he's passive or patient at the plate, um, and I think there's questions about whether or not he can stay at shortstop, right? Which are usually pretty good indications that a guy might have to move on, but. 
the feeling is that he you know he still controls the strike zone pretty well. The question is, can he tap into power? That's what everybody was kind of expecting when he came out of Eastern Illinois. But I think based on the return that they got for him, I think you see how the industry still views him. You know, I think one of the issues that Sweeney really faced was he was probably third on a shortstop depth chart behind Volpe and Peraza. And so, like, you have a guy who is a pretty good prospect. Can you trade him for somebody that fits your roster better? And they did that, I think, with Victor Gonzalez. And then with your Bebas, who they got from the Dodgers, who's a second baseman, third baseman, might end up being a left fielder in the end. That dude can really hit. Like, I don't know how much power there's going to be there in the end, but in talking to scouts, there was a feeling that he had a chance to be a big league regular. So you have similar grades, I think, in the end at Sweeney, where he's kind of on that. And, and Bebas, I think the def- defensive position probably impacts him some, where they're kind of fringe average right now, major league regulars, or at least that's the, the feeling for them. But for the Yankees, having somebody who can play second, third, left field probably fits better in the high minors. And it also, you know, like you've got a guy who, you know, is already on the 40-man roster who you're able to kind of get into the mix this year, gives them another left-handed bat, and they can try and use him if they need to for an extended period of third base, or they could use him some at second base, and it gives them, if he continues to develop a little bit more insurance, if Glaber Torres were to leave via free agency after this coming year. So I, I think it's... I think you have to take the trade in its totality because it's not like they traded away a first round pick and didn't get anything in return. Bebas is a guy like, and Victor Gonzalez is a pretty good relief pitcher. Like his numbers have been pretty good with the Dodgers. He's, you know, he spent a little bit more time the last year in the minor leagues. Than I think I would have anticipated, but like it's, he's pretty decent arm. So it was, it was actually a pretty healthy package. I felt like they got back for a guy who's probably going to play in the big leagues. The question is what's his role going to be? Yeah, especially because yeah, and I, I didn't want to give the there, there's there's varying levels of dumping your f- former first round pick, right? We've seen the Braves, for example, have traded away. I mean, a, a staggering number of their recent <laughs> draft picks in varying levels of we don't need this guy anymore, and this is part of a really big package to get this player. You know, there are teams that are clearly willing, you know, to make those moves quickly, and I agree that you know Vivas should not be. Again, our quick instinct, I'm really glad you made that point in, in comparing them and saying that it's actually maybe similar value because the reality of the way we are so quick to react to these trades is, oh my God, he was a first rounder. And that was clearly when this trade was announced, Yankees fans being like, wow, we gave up Sweeney? Like, Not that it was like, this is a disastrous trade, but oftentimes international prospects like Vivas, if they didn't get a lot of money and they weren't on prospect lists when they were in the complex league, it takes a while for people to kind of recognize them as similarly valued prospects. And I think that this is a great example where it's like, no, he actually is kind of on the same level as Trey Sweeney. He just might not be quite as flashy. And the Dodgers, like the Yankees, have developed so many of these players mm-hmm. to the point where when you look at their system, it's hard to even keep track of a, 30, a, a list of top 30 prospects is never going to do systems like that justice. And I think the Tulsa Drillers roster is probably <laughs> the team that, that Viva spent most of his time with this past year is, is maybe one of the best examples of that. But yeah. Jake, did you want to uh, add anything on, on, on those two in particular before we well, no, I just, the Dodgers? I just think first rounders are in the public understanding incredibly overvalued because of how it's just a label, right? A player getting picked in the first round means that at that point in their development, they were seen as one of the 32 best options or sorry, 32. What is this fucking, what am I talking about? One of the 30 best options or 
the money was right in the bonus right. pools. So, you know, like and I think the development is not linear and that the draft is a snapshot in time. And it's very, very easy to miss, guys. Now, the first round is still going to develop more talent in the second round than the third round and so on and so forth, right? But just because someone is a first-round pick does not make them can't miss two years into their career. I know that sounds very obvious. But your point, Jordan, about comparing it to the international side, where we don't even – we talk about big money guys and not big money guys like – it's just harder, I think, for casual fans to wrap their head around that comparison. Well, and I think the other part of it is that you have to be realistic about where you're picking in the draft and what you get out of it. If Trey Sweeney is, you know, on the scouting scale, a, a 40 or a 45 is a, a, you know, a below average major league regular or reserve picking in the 20s. That's actually a pretty good outcome for you. You know, I think if you start to look at I remember getting it into, into it with a scouting director over this and I said, well, yeah, I think I ends up being a fourth outfielder that you took there. Like, that's pretty good. And he was like, well, we think you can be better than that. And I was like, OK, well, I hope he is, you know, but but if you start to look through, you know, stars come from the first round. Almost, It's not exclusively, but for the vast majority of all stars, if they're drafted domestically, they're going to come out of the first round. The vast majority of regulars are going to come out of that. And the vast majority of role players are going to come out of the first round. Baseball's really hard, right? Like, And I think that's part of what happens with players like Sweeney is that, oh, well, he's he was a first rounder and he didn't really develop. Well, that's not really the case. Like if you're picking in the 20s, and Trey Sweeney ends up being a guy who, you know, can give you 350 plate appearances and play on the left side of the infield for four or five years. That's a pretty good player. That's a pretty good result out of that spot in the draft. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's totally fair. And again, the best organizations are this is why it's so valuable when you can turn even the sixth and seventh and eighth and twentieth rounders into anything because the expectations for them is is even lower. And that is just what puts organ certain organizations at such a healthier and position of strength than others when it comes to trades, when it comes to backfilling, when their injuries happen. That is why certain teams are in such better position to withstand uh, than others. And I know, Mike, you wanted to talk a little bit about this Tulsa Drillers team that Vivas played for. I know they were known much more for their pitching. Vivas was one yeah. of the ones who there, there were some high profile bats, uh, but in terms of performance, he was probably the one that that was that performed the best. Uh, but were there was there any uh, anyone other particularly guys you wanted to highlight on the uh, I mean I think Diego Cortaya is still worth talking about even though he didn't have a great season he's still really young I mean he's one of the top catching prospects in baseball mm -hmm. um and a big reason why is that I think there's a feeling that as the power develops that he could be a real two-way catcher like he could be a guy that provides power behind the plate and also was a very good defender but you're right I mean it's really the pitching and the reason that you know like I talked to scouts early in the year who went into TC Tulsa and they were, they were just kind of blown away by how much talent there was there. You know, names that you like Nick Destrini was one of the names that was there. He got traded in the Lance Lynn deal, but Emmett Sheehan was there. Landon Knack, who was what a second rounder in 2020, who was there for a dozen starts and really good Nick Frasso, who they got in the Mitch white trade. Frasso was up close to a hundred this year. That's a guy to really circle and watch either for the Dodgers near future 
or as a potential trade candidate. River Ryan's another guy. Like these are names that that I wanted to bring up because they have big arms. They they have um, like most Dodgers pitchers at this point in development maybe have a little bit of command issue, but they're also the names of the guys that are going to be discussed the most in trade this winter. And we anticipate the Dodgers being active on the trade market for at least one starting pitcher. I would think that some of the names that you're going to hear are going to be those guys from the double-A team. Frasso is the one to really keep an eye on because I think outside of him at Sheehan, he was the one that was kind of viewed as having the highest ceiling. Now, whether that's as a starter or a reliever kind of remains to be seen, but I had one Scott tell me that they thought that was an absolute steal getting him from Toronto in the Mitch White deal that they, that like Nick Frasso's got a, is going to pitch in the big leagues and, and has a chance to be pretty good. And if you know, you haven't even, mentioned Kyle Hurt, who made his major no. debut at the end of the season. And if you're just going pure stats, I mean, his were about as insane as you'll ever see for a starting pitcher in the minors. 110 strikeouts and in 65 innings mm-hmm. in double A. Uh, and that's another guy who really strange prospect trajectory, very well known in high school, very uneven college career, goes to the Marlins, ends up getting traded to the Dodgers. And again, like if you can turn those guys like you, Jake, like what Jake was talking about, like turning players into valuable trade chips, even if they're not going to end up impacting your major league team, it would be very interesting to see, you know, if they get involved in, in maybe cease uh, going after cease, you know, we've already seen that the Dodgers and White Sox make kind of a big deal here to see which other kind of guys they could maybe uh, go after there. But no, it is, it is really wild when, when you have some of these deeper systems, how many guys are having remarkable developments and and to making huge strides and they just it's just harder for them to break through into the public consciousness because mm-hmm. there's so many of them and I just I've just had that experience and not to mention on the hitting side with the Dodgers every year you pull up AAA and there's someone you've never heard of that's got a 900 OPS and that's that's and I know the PCL is the PCL but some of those guys have turned into real players you know and, yeah. and that's uh that's that's why they are winning 100 games pretty much every season that's the other guy the other place in their organization I keep an eye on is with Michael Bush who is there who probably is a first baseman in the end but can really hit and there's not really a great spot for him with the Dodgers he's he's a guy that I think would whether it's in talks for like a cease or for glass now like I would think that he's a name that's going to f- feature prominently in some of those discussions cease it's a little easier to see a bigger package because it's two years of control than glass now who what last year set a career high in innings of 120 but also if the rays were going to identify arms of the dodgers organization for a premium starting pitcher that would be really fun to see which ones that they they targeted because they've been so good at pitching development as well oh 100 uh all right i think i feel i feel good about this uh this here podcast gentlemen i know i know we're not supposed to compliment ourselves but i feel like we covered a lot of ground here um mike i'm going to give you the opportunity before we say goodbye um to name one rule 5 player that caught your interest, and then we will say goodbye. To keep it in the prospect focus, we're going to push our Otani uh, deferral. We are going to defer our Otani discussion to Friday. Uh, in, in we'll have the $698 million conversation <laughs> on Friday. Yes. Uh, but, Mike, because we didn't get to touch on Rule 5, if there was one player that they caught your interest, I wanted to, to give you the opportunity to uh, share. Um, you know, it's the Rule 5. <laughs> and I know you don't so like the Rule 5. That's all we're asking for one. No, I mean, it's not that I don't like the Rule 5. I think it has an important use. And last year, we saw a number of guys that, that spent the, their year in the big leagues 
Um, but this is a shitty rule five year. And the reason for that is because the 2020 draft was only five rounds. Right. And this was the rule five draft year for the college players that were in the 2020 draft. And so it's just less, it's just fewer players and fewer interesting players. And so you end up with fewer guys getting to develop into something interesting. And we end up with kind of a blah rule five year. So I think, I think Matt Sauer probably is the name that stands out the most from the, the Royals took him from the Yankees organization. He had been a top 30 prospect according to MLB pipeline there. He was a big high school player who, you know, is probably going to have a future in the bullpen. Um, Kansas City has done a, a fairly nice job, actually, of building out their pitching staff in free agency um, and trying to add some guys externally to to give them a little bit better depth. Um, and they have had success in the Rule 5 draft before, Now going back quite a ways now to Joaquin Soria, but um, they did manage to find a uh, – a key reliever there. And, Brad, and, and I should mention Brad Keller too, who you know ended up being a, a starter for them for most of six years. They took out a ball in the diamondbacks organization. So um, I'm interested to see sour. I think he probably fits in the bullpen. Well, for them, I think it's one of those things where in another organization, he probably would have been protected, uh, but he's going to get an opportunity with Kansas city and with, you know, everything that they've done, you know, just recently adding both Seth Lugo and free agency and, and Chris Stratton, it looks like to that group too. Um, sour should be able to pitch in some lower leverage spots to be able to get his feet wet. You know, it's a pretty good fastball slider combination. So I would say sour is the guy for me. I don't know. Do you have one Jordan? Good pick. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's Davis and De Los Santos, whether or not he actually sticks. I, I like when teams take big swings. I'm not optimistic. Um, but, uh, for a team that desperately needs anybody that can hit it out of the infield, I, I admire the courage to take a player of, 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 uh, De Los Santos, uh, risk and potential reward, although it's going to take some pretty big adjustments. Apparently really a great kid too. Really great kid, by the yeah. way. I really like pass. <laughs> You're I mean, a big you had, pass guy. Yeah. I mean, you had which one, Wait, but which one? Well, I was going to say you had 17, 19 teams interested in pass. Yeah. You know, yeah. you had nine, seven, 19 teams took pass. So which, which pass was your favorite? We were in the room for the rule five. Was Ooh, there one which pass that was, was delivered favorite? by the yes. representative? Yes. Yeah. The Jays pass. So the way that the rule five draft works is that there are these microphones like you're in the aisles, like you're seeing someone at your local university give a speech and then they open it up for Q&A after, right? And the the uh, reps from the teams walk to the mic and they say uh, that uh, the A's take Spence, Mitch, right-handed pitcher for the New York Yankees, double-A system, right? Okay. Or they go up and they say, the uh, Los Angeles Angels pass. And then they said, and, back and down. you don't know because, and those like that five to seven seconds between when the, you know, the amateur scouting intern stands up and, you know, trots on over to the microphone. <laughs> and that could happen. That's the intensity of the rule five. Anything could happen. Any- uh, <laughs> and the Blue Jays rep said, fuck this noise and just screamed pass from the table without getting up to the microphone. <laughs> and so the Blue Jays pass, I know maybe not the best week uh, for Toronto baseball, but it got off to a great start with the Blue Jays rep hollering their selection. And I believe we, we, everyone like laughed. The whole yeah. room of the, the entire and then, industry was like, then, hell yeah. And then teams started passing, dude. That Whoever that dude was, I want to have that 
Hey, if you're listening, anyone in the Blue Jays system is listening. Carson Sestouli, <laughs> text us. We want to know who that was so yeah. that we can interview the the past pass man. <laughs> Jeff My- Passman. Mike, final rule five thoughts, then we leave. I, well, I was going to say, dude, are we going to cover the minor league phase next week? Because there were some interesting names in that. Too. Talk about pass. Woo. I don't know. TJ Sycamore of the Reds got my attention. <laughs> Seriously. Like, that's a former hey. first rounder, and the Reds are so good with fastball development. Like, that kind of got my attention. Mike, enough. Full, full circle. The Yankees traded him away, and he was a minor league rule five pick. That's all you yes. really need to know. Um, uh, thank you all for listening to this edition of Prospect Barbacast. We'll be back on Friday to talk uh, all about uh, Shohei Otani's uh, very wealthy future, very, very far in the future. 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 Are Shohei you concerned Otani. that he's going to be short on catch? Yeah. I love yeah. the idea. Dodgers, Dodgers like, we – We'll, we, we'll, we'll get you later. He's gonna I'll, get be, you, I'll get you later. So broke. So He's broke. He's going to spend the next 10 years asking everybody else to become, hey, man, you got this? I promise I'll you get got you this. I, I, I'll, yeah. I'll get you 2035. I'm, I'm all over it. So I tweeted this. Uh, I said that I got a, a, a text from a big leaguer who was like, Otani's got dinner next time if we ever go out. And then he texted the same player texted me yesterday and was like, actually, maybe I'll cover it. Like, I got it. I got, this I got guy, it. This guy's going to be struggling. So, it's Dude, fine. I don't. We'll talk about it more on yeah. Friday, but get your money now. I would rather get all of it up front. Okay. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Okay. It's the lottery strategy. Yeah. And that's why I don't have a 401k. All right. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> thank, thank you all for listening. Baseballbarbecast at gmail.com. Send your prospect emails. Thank you, Mike Farron. Thank you, Isabella Joseph, for producing. And we will hit any other transactions we missed and whatnot on Friday's episode of Baseball Barbecast. But until then, Mike Farron, thank you. Bye. Mike, do a backflip. Mike, do a backflip. Whoa, that's crazy. (laughs) Holy shit. Oh, my God. Okay, bye, bye. Serious XM Podcasts.